It's Heart of the Matter 2.0, and tonight we're doing to excommunicate or not part two. Last week we did part one, and uh, why don't we begin with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, we uh, need you and seek you uh, in this fallen world and pray that your spirit will be with us. Seekers who are trying to understand you uh, better, uh, to understand you, the only true and living God, and your son whom, he, whom you sent, we just pray that you will help us with that. Things I, I say are, that are wrong and off, you'll just forgive, and, uh, but that your spirit will clarify all things to those who are uh, looking to understand. And we pray for this now in Jesus' name, amen. 2018, and we encourage you to get online and take advantage of the content that we have diligently tried to uh, push ourselves to create for you, and uh, hotm.tv will give you access to everything. That includes uh, over 1,100 hour-long and uh, or shreds of shows uh, that have gone back to 2006, at least the same amount of verse-by-verse teachings through books of the Bible at campuschurch.tv. And uh, then we have that new show for college-age students, and uh, that is also available on there. We also have books on there that are free to download into ebook form. Um, so we just want to challenge you to uh, check that stuff out and uh, see if it's worth your while. We're also on YouTube and and uh, social media and all those different social media, uh, Instagram and Facebook and all those things. So you can see that on HOTM or Heart of the Matter. Uh, We also finished our first volume of the Christian Anarchist Crookbook, and we hope that you'll take time to obtain that at HOTM.tv. Download it for free uh, or use it as an e-book for free as well. And remember this coming year, we are having some uh, guests appear at different times. Each month, we're having a different guest. Starting next week, January, we're having Pastor Michael Imperioli, uh, Imperial of uh, First Presbyterian Downtown Salt Lake City. He'll be our guest here on Heart. And uh, that should be a great, really informative. He's a smart guy. He loves the Lord. Uh, and he represents a, a segment of Presbyterianism that's a little bit different from some of the Presbyterians that have been on the show before. And then in February, we're going to have James White, Brother James White of Alpha Omega Ministries. That's what all this uh, poster board stuff is behind us. Uh, he uh, ostensibly is going to come on the show to straighten me out. And, uh, and I really look forward to that because we're going to have a, a loving engagement. It's not going to be a debate. Tonight on his program, I got a call that he's saying he's going to come and debate me. James, we are not going to be debating. I won't debate with people, but we will talk about our views and and the Lord and God. And uh, that's going to be on Tuesday, February uh, 13th from 8 to 11, three hours with James White. Refreshments uh, will be served. Then in March, we're going to have Pastor uh, Nathaniel Tyler. He's also on the show. He's a five-point Calvinist. He's... uh, He's more affable. He's not really too argumentative, uh, but he wants to come and, and uh, in a friendly manner discuss things. And in April, I'm thinking we're going to have Jason Wallace from the Magna Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And Jason wants to come on and defend what he emphatically calls the biblical faith. So I hope we can reason together on that one. So that's, that's going to take you up for the first uh, quarter. Uh, and then also on February 13th, when James White comes, which is what all that's about, the showdown, we're going to be uh, talking about the para-ministries we're involved in, and we're launching a brand new one uh, that's already set up. Seth has built the site. It's very exciting, and we can't look to uh, bring that out. So you might notice that all the first guests on the show are all Presbyterians. 
Uh, and that's interesting because Presbyterians certainly believe in coming and um, talking about their faith in, in different, kind of defending it sometimes. They're very apologetic and they're kind of on a spectrum of argumentation. And so it's going to be, you know, f- from the uh, far, far right side, the farthest right side of Presbyterianism, you have the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and that's Pastor Jason Wallace. Then you probably have James White. Then you probably have uh, Nathaniel uh, Tyler. And then you probably have, not all the way to the left, but probably more of a centrist view, you're going to have next week's guest, Pastor Mike Imperi Al. So it's going to be fun to see how all of them differ in theology and doctrine, but if they accept one another. And if they fully accept one another's views, why do they even bother differing with each other? That's the thing I want to know. If you have different views, why do you establish different churches if you think everybody in all the different churches are okay? If they're okay, why not just be one big church and just have different views within the church? At campus, we have people who believe different things and see things differently and argue about things and stand up afterward and Q&A and talk, and it's fine. We, we don't care because... We believe that it's between you and God. It's your relationship with him. That's what it's about. We can't police that. You know, I can give you my opinion, but my opinions are faulty. So we just teach the Bible the best we can. We leave it up to the Spirit to teach it. And if you have differing views, fine. So why split campus? Why become a bunch of different churches when we should just all disagree? Anyway, uh, it's so fascinating to me. All of them here to explain their truth and yet... Uh, we're going to hear about some of the difficulties that they have uh, doing that. Last week, we introduced the topic of Christian excommunication and how the apostles, especially Paul, recommended it in a number of ways and on several occasions to the church in that day. Sorry, dry. Mm. Uh, we noted that supporters, the support passages that believers and pastors today use to justify using Paul's words to excommunicate in the church today are dead on. Those supports are there. We gave you about eight passages. But the overriding thought is Jesus' church needs to be carefully governed today because he's going to come back and get his church And that is why church discipline is necessary. Because the apostles, when they were writing, they were saying, listen, he's coming back, he's coming back, he's coming back. Get ready because you don't want to be left behind and you want to be uh, in his good graces by not falling from the faith. So be pure, be righteous, be ready, and you will be saved from the indestruction. And so I admit that if this is the case, there is no justification in the, in the church today for liberal treatment of sinners uh, or for people with wild, varying theological views. They must be put out of the congregation because they represent a danger to the congregation. So pastors and reverends should be holding uh, them accountable for their lifestyle, their sins, their doctrines, and kicking them out of the church if Jesus is still coming back to get his church. I mean, that's how it should be. That's what all the epistles are about. Um, but then we started showing that there are a number of factors that need to be taken into consideration when it comes to what the apostles wrote at that time. And one of those was they were in a time of war. 
And we pointed out that during that age, the church was nascent, it was new, and we have the Romans coming down on the believers, we have Judaizers coming down on the believers, we have uh, Gnostics coming down on the believers, we have all of them waiting for Jesus to come back and save them from the destruction that was coming on Jerusalem in 70 AD, and the apostles were there saying, don't let these forces sneak into the faith. If they do, they will destroy us internally. So you must be strict on what people do and don't have any association with this person or that person or whatever. And, and it's like during wartime, we pointed out that women couldn't get nylons. Doesn't mean women shouldn't wear nylons today during, that, during the war. They shouldn't have nylons because those, those products are used for other things. Well, in Jesus' day, the Apostles' Church, they were under tremendous scrutiny and warfare, and so that unity among those few believers had to be tight. We also noted that there are passages modern Christians use to, there's only one real passage that Christians use today uh, to impose other passages on ourselves from the Bible. In other words, we take the Bible, we read it, and we say, this should be done, this should be done, this should be done. But nowhere in the New Testament does it ever say, this should be done to forever, that this should be done forever. It just says, hey, to the people at Ephesus, this is what I'm telling you. Hey, to the believers at Corinth, this is what I'm telling you. And there's no passage in the New Testament that says, this is for people to follow to a T materially for the rest of time. That's the only passage in there is one that is in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, and it says in the King James, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so what believers do is they say that passage tells us that all scripture is profitable and good, and that's true. Scripture is profitable and good but not in a material sense. We don't do many, many things as we've proven in past shows that the Bible says we should do. Women speaking in church is one, how we treat widows is another, and a number of other things. We have just arbitrarily decided, well, those don't apply. So either they all, it all applies or it doesn't apply. We can't pick and choose. Because what happens is when you pick and choose, what you have are different denominations who pick this but not that. And this denomination picks this but not that. And it can't work that way. We either read that book spiritually and let it move the individual to reach God through the spirit and faith and ignore the material applications that were there for that day. Or we take the whole thing and we practice it. Darn it. We practice it. And we do exactly what it says. But churches, there's not a church on earth that does it. Not one on earth that does every. The Amish try. But there's everything that is there in the New Testament. So the thing with that scripture, though, um, my, my brother E. Christian, he goes by E. Christian, sent me this. And it is a study on 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, this is fascinating. Uh... It says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. You got that one? And that is the only New Testament justification we have for every scripture being used today in the, in the church. But the particle chi is missing from most manuscripts if, of that verse, and there is no verb in that verse. 
And so if you step back and look at, there's actually three mistakes in the King James translation of that verse. Even Adam Clark, great Christian scholar, writes this. Every writing says this is how it should read. Every writing divinely inspired is profitable for doctrine. Do you hear the difference between how it should read in the Greek and how it, should, how it does read in the King James? The King James says, all scripture is given by inspiration. But it really should say every writing divinely inspired. And there's a big difference in that, you see. There is a huge difference. And, and the particle chi is omitted in almost all versions. This is what Adam Clark says. And many of the fathers certainly do not agree well with the text. The apostle is here, he says, beyond all controversy, speaking of the writings of the Old Testament, which, because they came by divine inspiration, he terms the Holy Scriptures. And it is of them alone that this passage is to be understood. And although all the New Testament came by direct inspiration too, as it was not collected at that time, not indeed complete, the apostle could not have reference to it. So we have a great Bible scholar saying, listen, that passage is, is uh, Paul talking to uh, Timothy, and he's saying, listen, Timothy, you've known Scripture since you were a youth, and all Scripture is good uh, that is inspired of God. But we take it, and we use it as a justification to materially apply everything in that New Testament, but it's a hypocrisy because we don't materially apply everything in the New Testament. Every writing divinely inspired is profitable for doctrine. That one I like. That one I am sold out for. Uh, then we began a list, okay, last week. So we said, these are the reasons why they say we should have excommunications, we should disfellowship, we should have church discipline, and we talked about all those. I'm not going to go over those again. Those are last week's show. And then we started putting on the board the reasons why that's not true according to the Bible, not just my stupid opinion. All right, so I'm going to go to this camera and let's talk about this. The first thing we said is what it says in the literal translation of the Greek in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11, where Paul writes to the people of his day, ready? The end of the age did come upon us. If this is so, that age is now over. Read 1 Corinthians 10, 11, especially in Young's literal translation. Read it in the Greek and see what it says. What he says is, the age ended with them and it fell upon them. That's what it said. Now, if that's happened, we go to the next thing. And that is, what did God say his body would look like at the end of this age that Paul said was upon them? He says in several places in Scripture that he would write his laws upon the minds and hearts of those who are his. And he would forgive their unrighteousness and sins. He would forgive their unrighteousness and sins. And he would write his laws on their minds and hearts. And that no man should tell his neighbor, know the Lord, know the Lord, because all will know me, meaning all who are his. You see? That is a completely different picture than what we still go by in the church today. We wander around thinking that we're still in the apostolic church and we still have to go out and, and warn everybody and 
excommunicate and not eat with people and don't bid them Godspeed because we're still in the apostolic age, you see. But nothing else supports that we are, especially Scripture. Then we look at 1 Corinthians 15, and where Paul tells us plainly that once Jesus has returned, he says, then comes the end. The end of what? He says that is when death is over, and Jesus submits himself to the Father. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 through 29 around, 28. Read those passages and see what it says, okay? And so since that is the case, we can see in a biblical sense that the end of all things, all material church, all making sure widows meet seven qualifications for support, all excommunications and disfellowshipments against each other, all pastors thinking they have some sort of authority over the flock, any sort, all tithes and all demands for purity and all Sabbath days, all that was part of that age has been wrapped up. The temple destroyed. The genealogy is gone. There's no priesthood. No one knows who has any, what authority. You cannot even speak of authority. No one has it. Okay, why? Because God writes his laws upon our hearts and upon our minds. And he is our God and we are his people. And we have direct access to him. There is no intermediary. Nobody sitting in a church should go to the pastor, priest, reverend, and say, well, what should I do? And the pastor says, well, God, God wants you to do this or you can't do that. Baloney! That's why Christ came. For us to have him as our mediator directly, right? And we've talked enough about tithes and everything else. Then we went to the writer of Hebrews and how the writer of Hebrews says that God says, you know, one last time before the end of the age, one last time I'm going to shake everything. And God says in Hebrews chapter 14 or 12, he says, I'm going to shake everything in heaven. I'm going to shake everything on earth. And he says, so that anything that can be shaken will not remain. So that the only thing that can remain is that which cannot be shaken. Cannot be shaken. So I have a question for you. Can a brick and mortar church and their government and governance be shaken? Of course it can. Can a man who stands over a flock be shaken? Of course he can. Can anything that we do in the material church be shaken? Of course it can. And so that passage is, is neutered if we still try to practice religion. It's completely neutered. But I don't think that passage is empty. I think that passage has meaning. That at the end of the age, God shook everything. The entire, he shook it so hard that the entire temple mount, which nobody could believe, sank down, not a stone left upon itself. So much he shook it so that the only thing to remain are things of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that guides us. We love the Word. We read the Word. We study the Word. It is a great man, uh, map for us individually. But it's the Spirit that teaches us what it is saying. And if there's differences, we let those differences lose to love. If someone says, I'm a modalist, and someone says, I'm a Trinitarian, right, we know in our hearts, we know we're right, right? And we say, they're so wrong. And when someone has a view about eternal punishment, another person has another view, and eschatology in another view, and this version of the Bible and another view, and all these rules and other views, that should be removed by love so that the body is not torn apart. The body is united in love 
and let the differences that are shakeable in our world go away. So we left off saying that all these things are cumulative description of God's kingdom, the new Jerusalem established in heaven, raining down, operating on the hearts of men and women. And the authority and the, all the other stuff, not necessary. We noted that all church playing, all church discipline, all trying to reenact the New Testament church are exercises in futility. They have been a waste of time uh, for two, nearly 2,000 years. Began by the early church fathers, propagated by the Catholic Church for 1,000 years, churned up with the Protestant Reformation so much that Sola Scriptura did nothing but bifurcate, trifurcate, triplicate the church into a thousand different pieces where all we do is argue about what church you go to and who's right. And when the whole thing has been right there in Scripture that it is all a spiritual kingdom and you can belong to it here. Your resurrection actually begins here because you're going to have a spiritual resurrection when you die. It begins here as you're working through your flesh and trying to turn from sin by the power of Christ through the Spirit. And all these things God is doing with His believers while the churches are getting in His way with their stupidity, right? So all of this is because we're trying to figure out what's the best place for Mormons to go to when they come out of the Mormon church. And it certainly hasn't been what we've seen all around us. Are there other things to consider about do we need excommunication church discipline today? And I think there are a few. First, I think it's important to never forget that Jesus, just, just think about this with me. Jesus called 12 men and they witnessed his ministry. They were taught by him and they witnessed his resurrection. And when Judas killed himself, they decided to cast lots and they chose Matthias, who had been with them from the beginning. That's one of the caveats. Had to have been with us from the beginning. And then we know Paul came in and Paul was called. I think he's the true 12th apostle, by the way. I think Matthias was a mistake of Peter trying to do things religiously when the Spirit was going to call Paul later. Anyhow, we hear nothing of Matthias, but we hear so much of Peter, I mean of Paul. But these apostles had such an important role during Jesus' church or during the bride being captured then. They were there to give discipline. They were there to instruct. They were there to perform miracles like no other. I mean, they did all sorts of things according to Acts and the rest of the thing. How, this was how Jesus set up his church then. With 12 apostles, 13, however you want to count it, when they died off, murdered by Herod, etc., they weren't replaced. They're, they're, we don't see, oh, and then we called this apostle to it. They weren't replaced. Why? Because people stopped meeting the criteria of being firsthand witnesses of all the things from the beginning. They had a specific purpose to take that church so the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And the gates of hell tried with all those enemies during their war. And those apostles led them, that bride, to the point where Jesus took his church. That's the church he saved. Now, during that time before he took it, at least 100,000 were killed by Nero. At least 100,000 Christians were killed, were allowed to be killed. So that wiped out a good portion of that small church in the beginning. And it was told that he could do that for 42 months. And to the day, the 42 months are po uh, pointed out historically by uh, uh, Suetonius and other historians. To the day, Nero killed Christians. And then he killed himself. Okay? So... 
We have that reason for the apostles there doing what they did in Christ's nascent church. We don't have them today. We don't have any leadership today. Where is it? Is it Billy Graham? Is it Franklin Graham? I mean, they don't have any control or everything. Is it Chuck Smith? My mentor? He's gone. Love him, but he's gone. I mean, what man? Where's our centralized authority? Is it the Pope? Is it the Mormon prophet? These guys are all playing church. That's all they're doing. They are pretending, they might even believe it, to be the spokesperson now. They have no authority. They're not specially trained. They haven't seen Christ's resurrection, and they haven't died for it. They haven't written any scripture. They don't have a conference where they gather everybody together and say, this is what the elders in the church should do. We have no centralized authority. So the importance of this is that if we don't have the same governess over us today, the same firsthand leadership trained by Jesus, witnesses of his resurrection, then obviously something has changed between the New Testament church and the church thereafter. But we never talk about that. We say, well, we have the Bible. But first of all, we didn't have that for really the first 1,530 years in a readable form or, or an agreed upon form. And then once the, uh, the Protestant Reformation got a hold of it, that splintered off into nothing but division. So the Bible really has, I mean, we can say it's our authority, but we all differ even on something as simple as baptism. Look around. It's religious bull-loney. 2,000 years of it, all in the name of trying to resurrect, uh, build up what God shook down to the ground, trying to build it back up and play church. We don't even have an agreeable body of believers. We, we, we can barely agree. We can say, Jesus is Lord. There is one God. I've been saved. And about there it starts getting dicey. Tongues, baptism, membership, tithes, worthiness, excommunication. We could go on, just on and on and on. If this is Jesus' church that he's coming back to take, it's in a hell of a mess. It's nothing like the New Testament church was. So we have a problem. It's either the New Testament church as it was, and it will be right as Jesus wants it to be when he takes it, or it's a complete mess and something's wrong. I would go with the latter. But here's the thing. It's not an ugly, messy, blanked up kingdom. His kingdom is perfect. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you by the spirit. He is reigning over individuals' lives in, in India and in the U.S. and in the Europe and all over the world. I don't mean to cut anybody out who lives in these other countries who watches the show. He's, he's, he's governing over his kingdom of true believers. And the more I live and, and walk around and talk and get emails and stuff, the more I see a real difference between true believers and church people. Church people, they just, they just do their church thing, you know? It's all about the church thing. But true believers, man, they know the difference. And they keep a light touch on church. 
They might use it for their social and they might appreciate a pastor here and there. Even here at campus, we don't, we don't have real church people. They come in, they hear a teaching. Yeah, that one was pretty good. I don't know. Because seekers don't let men get involved between them and God. Seekers say, it's me directly. I'm responsible for my faith by the Holy Spirit. I will die alone without any pastor or church being in between me. And I will, God, I'm answerable to God for my faith. See, that's what seekers say, and they flip their nose to the orchestrations that men try to impose upon them. There is no more excommunication in an age where God has shaken everything up. He's written his laws upon, our, upon the minds and hearts of his believers. His son has taken his uh, kingdom back before imminent destruction, and now his kingdom reigns forever and ever and has for 2,000 years and will for another 2,000 years if we don't destroy ourselves, you know. Another question I have regarding the broad subject of church discipline is, in all honesty, who the hell gets to meet it out? <laughs> meet it out? Um, who gets to do it? I am fascinated when I sit with pastors of late more and more, and they tell me, going to go to camera one, they tell me that church discipline is, a, is a, an important thing. And when they find somebody in sin, that it's really important that they remove them from the flock because they're a danger, you know. And so if they find, depending on how strict the church is, but if they're a homosexual, admitted homosexual, practicing homosexual, someone living with their boyfriend or girlfriend, someone caught up in fornication, someone who's a drunkard, I mean, it can go on and on and on. Those outward fleshly sins... Uh, the pastors really truly believe with their elders' boards and their deacons that they should, you know, perform some kind of religious excommunication on them. And let's get real. God judges the contents of people's hearts. And who's more of an egregious sinner? Just look at Jesus in his day. He walked around, and you never heard him bash really on anybody. In fact, he was criticized for eating with sinners that we're kicking out of the churches today. He's criticized for eating with them, but the only one he really railed on were the religious leaders. Th those are the ones he couldn't stand. Those are the ones we have entire chapters like Matthew 22, where he's calling them vipers and just railing the heck out of them. But with the prostitutes and those people caught in adultery and the lepers and the whatever, he was eating with them. He said, the Son of Man didn't come to judge you, he came to save you. But suddenly, because of that little period of New Testament time and Paul's direction to those people then in warfare, suddenly we continue to practice that. And you have pastors who can have good hearts and you have some that can be rotten bastards. And those guys think that they can look out at a congregation and they can, with a rotten bastard heart, just because they're not screwing their neighbor's wife, they get to pose judgment on someone who's messed up in their morals? It's insane what we have put up with. And it's time for a change. The response from those in favor of church discipline is that if church discipline was in the hand of believers in Jesus' day, then it should be in the hand of believers in ours. Uh, I would appeal to four points. There was first a need. It was wartime. Church from uh, Satan was on them. Rome was on them. Jews were on them. Continuity was vital for them to stick together. Number two, they were a close-knit, intimate group. Their very unity in a house was vital for their physical survival. 
if one of them is sleeping with his father's wife, yeah, that's going to bring destruction to that little group. Do something about that. We're not doing that now. We're, doing a, we're in a completely different world now. They were under apostolic rule, point three, in an age of hyper-spiritual gifting, where those guys, they could read the minds of people. Those guys were gifted with spiritual gifts to govern. They could call people out right then, and they had the power to do it. I've seen others people try to do it. They do it with me, and it's really quite humorous. And then the fourth, their stated actual purpose was to remain united until he came. Jesus promised, Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew 23, 34, within a generation, I'll be back. Every one of his apostles, he's coming back, he's coming back. It's going to be quicker. It's going to be, it's at hand. I'm telling you, he is here now, John is telling them. He is almost here on us in the Greek. That's what he says. Were they wrong? No, they weren't wrong. That's the context. All right, how much time do we have left? All right, I'm going to do one thing. It's the seventh point, and I'm just going to cover it. If you look at Scripture, go to camera two, there seems to be a thriving undercurrent that speaks to the importance of hospitality. This is my point, number seven, as to why... um, excommunication and treatment of people who are caught up in sins and heresies uh, don't need to be removed from the church, and it's hospitality. It seems that in most cases of hospitality, the following things are evident, and I don't know how many there are. So there needs to be a need. There is a need for comfort or care. That's the first one. And then if there's a need, need, we extend, number two, Extend hospitality. And this is in the material world, okay? This is talking about helping people out in the literal, actual world. The next thing is we do is if we're going to extend hospitality literally in this world to somebody after there is a need and we extend hospitality is we turn on the lights. And the next thing we do when we extend hospitality is we make sure that the place is clean and we make sure that uh, our, our guests, uh, everything's prepared. And number five, we, pre- we make sure they have food and drink because we're being hospitable to our guest who is in need, right? And then we make sure that they have a place to rest, a place to sleep. Anybody who's entertained a guest uh, will do these things. And then we'll make sure that there's enough product in place for human hygiene. You know, you check the bathroom, make sure all that's in place. And then you might make uh, provision for transportation. This is a really hospitable person. Making sure that your guest can get around town and get to the appointments he or she needs to because they're visiting, they don't have a car or they're poor or whatever it might be. And then uh, if they become ill, we make sure that we get them to the hospital or to a doctor's care. And then finally... uh, we say, mi casa is tu casa, our house is your house, feel at home. Whatever you need, this, my house is your house. That's real hus- hospitality, right? And then finally, uh, we might even provide for them in their temporal cash needs, if it's so bad they don't have any. 
So those are some of the just thoughts, random thoughts that is put down on hospitality. And all through the New Testament and Old Testament, hospitality is encouraged. In fact, among the Jews, it was really important that you're hospitable to people because they were once strangers in a foreign land and they relied on people's kindness. So they too should be hospitable. And if you go to those countries, you'll find people are very, very hospitable in that age. All right. Well, this is such an important concept. And this is in, this was discussed in the material church. And really important, right? But the thing about it is, is today, sometimes we can do this for certain people, but it's, it's a different world for us to be hospitable to everyone. It can be very dangerous for people to suddenly become hospitable to the first person they find in need. You have to be careful. We have a different age, a different time. But materially, back in that day, all these things were normative. And for a Jew to do this with travelers and all that, I don't, maybe they had serial killers then, I don't know. But you don't read about it. All you read about is making sure you entertain strangers. They might be angels unawares and things like that, right? Well, in our day, I would suggest, as just another evidence, we have spiritual hospitality. In the kingdom age, hospitality. And I want you to just look at these things, and I want you to think of Jesus. Honestly, I just fleshed this out before. A person is in need of comfort and care. Well, all of us are sinners, and all of us are in need of forgiveness and reconciliation and care. So if we're looking at it materially, we can say, oh, we got to do all this. And there's cases where we should do this. But if we're looking at it spiritually, this is mandatory in the faith. This is what it's all about. It is not about this. This is part of it. But in our day and age, we have government programs. We have all sorts of stuff that are actually doing much of this. I live right downtown with the homeless. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm in up to here with them. I know what goes on. So these things, yes, family members, some neighbors maybe, a couple homeless people who are vetted. But bottom line, we're really looking more at this as Christians. And what does God say about his hospitality? So the first one is there are people who need comfort and care. And, and we know that through Jesus, all sinners are in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. And what's the next one? Well, we extend hospitality. Well, the call to receive the hospitality of God is a constant. It is constantly come to me. Be born again. Be born of the Spirit. Receive me. Turn to me. Turn from the world. I'm knocking on the door. Open up. Go on. I'll come in. You let me in. You come in. Whatever it is. There's a constant extension of hospitality in the spiritual sense from God to us. The next one is you make sure everything is, is clean, right? Well, God sacrificed his son from the foundation of the world who's gone on to prepare a place for us. He is, God is the most hospitable creature in all of the universe forever. The most hospitable. We act when we read the New Testament like we have an excuse not to be spiritually hospitable. But God is the most hospitable God in ever, and he's always bringing, trying to welcome. Always. Okay? And then we make sure there's enough food and drink. Who is Jesus? He's the bread of life. He's the, he's the living water. This is, this is the, the application of what we're about in the church. It is not this stuff, the material stuff. 
Okay? Uh, Jesus, uh, we pl- provide bedding, a place for them to rest, right? Or, or the lights. We turn the lights on. And he's the light of the world, shining into the world. And, the, and his own didn't receive him not. Uh, food and drink. Uh, rest and sleep. He says, come unto me and I will give you rest. Do you see the concept of hospitality in the material church, the nation of Israel, that age, Genesis to Revelation? Yes, definitely here. But the apostles, they focused on this and they said there should be less in the spirit. Meaning, don't be so open. Why? Because we are under a time when you can't be. But in our day and age, it's the opposite. We can't be so open this way, but we can be so open this way. It reverses itself from that economy to the economy that we're in. (sighs) Human hygiene, he cleanses us from sin. He washes it all away. Provision for transportation. We're moved by the Spirit. We let the Spirit move us where we're going, take us places, and in the end, take us home. You know? Uh, if we become ill, we take our people to the hospital on this side. He's the hospital. He's the medicine. That, that's what we're introducing to the world. Shift from the material to the spiritual. Uh, we make people feel at home. Mi casa, tu casa. He welcomes all to his house. He welcomes all to his church. To his body. It's not even his church. He welcomes all to his body. Come in. Believe in me. Be part of us. Not stay away. Be excluded from us. And then he provides for the spiritual constantly without uh, cost or price. He's constantly giving us the richest thing that we could have in this world, uh, just like we would care for the temporal needs of somebody. Let me wrap it up with this. Hospitality requires sacrifice on our part, uh, and, and it can be taxing in terms of being convenient and being uh, a time user of our life and a personal expense. There is a correlation, though, between our desire and willingness to be hospitable toward others and our personal love for them. Just think about that. There's a correlation between our willingness to be hospitable toward others. And I'm talking about in the church sense, hospitable to the gays, to the the refugees, to the adulterers, to the alcoholics. There's a difference. Uh, There's a willingness to be hospitable toward people we love. If we don't love, we have a reticence of being hospitable to them, even in our own families. If we have an uncle we love, he needs a place to stay, we're very open to doing all these things. We have an uncle we hate, and he needs a place to stay? Eh, not so much. When we, do, when we do that in the church, when we become inhospitable because we don't love everyone, there's a real problem in that relative to God. We justify it by using the New Testament text because the apostles said it in circum circumstances, but the scripture, the overall view is We need to have the hospitality of God toward everybody all the time in the body and in this age. Having taken his bride, the gates of hell did not prevail against his church. The body of Christ is now completely, wholly hospitable. We are there. That's what we are there for the headbangers. We're there for the punks. We're there for the tattooists. We're there for the 
Mormons, we're there for the Catholics, we're there for the Baptists, the homos, the pedophiles, the rapists, the criminals. We're there for the right wing, the left wing, the communists. We're there for male, female, bond free. We are there for everybody sharing the light, making the hospitality of God available to all for them to come home to him, to find a place to be in him, and not to play these stupid games that men have been playing for nearly two millennia. All right, let's open up the phones, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We have John in Salisbury, MD, on line one. Maryland boy, you're on the air. Hey, Sean, what's up? Long time no see, man. How are you? Good, how are you? How was your Christmas, brother? Oh, it was like every other day. Hey, I wanted to get some feedback for, from you, because like I told you last time I called, I... A lot of those LDS callers calling in are rude to you, and I'm just trying to soak up all the knowledge I can from you. And by the way, I wanted to give you some props because I heard on one of your shows you're going to have Dr. James uh, White on in a couple months. Yeah, he'll be here February 13th, so tune in. You can call in with questions. That's fantastic. Um, so really, it was just a feedback question. We both, I was saying we're about the same age. We both grew up in the church, 40 years in the LDS faith. Do you personally have an opinion on the Holy Ghost as far as, um, you know, I, I hear a lot on your show when callers call in about warm, fuzzy, happy feelings, and I've heard a lot of evangelicals debating Mormons on that. And what I want to know is, what's Sean McCraney's definition of the Holy Ghost if it manifests? Like, I was telling you that I had read the promise that Moroni made, and if you remember, I told you that I felt that he witnessed to me. Yeah. Is there a different... How do you distinguish personally, because... My whole faith in the LDS Church rests on when I did that experiment. So yeah. I wanted to see if you had any feedback on well, that. The first thing I would say is that uh, when you rely on feelings to, under, to get your knowledge, then you are really throwing yourself up to the unknown. And I would say, what, how do your feelings of goodness differ from the uh, Muslim or from the Buddhist or from the atheist who knows, feels just from his own person that there is no God. How do we distinguish between feelings and, and, uh, and truth? So uh, that's my first point. The second right, point... Right, I guess we're asking the same question, because that, that was, with me, it was like, I prayed about it, I got what I felt was a manifestation, but somebody could argue a point like, I, I don't know, apologetics, I'm, I'm, I'm new to all this stuff, this, these definitions, but... To me, a manifestation of the Holy Ghost bearing witness to you is different than me saying, Sean, I had a happy feeling last Tuesday when I prayed about something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And, and, and well, see, what I would say to you as someone who's been LDS is that um, nowhere in Scripture, of, the, of Christian Scripture, the Bible, does God ever say, pray about this and see how you feel. Never. That is a Mormon construct, and, and, and Joseph Smith was very big on feelings. He, he, he used tears and laughter to a great advantage to get people to feel. And if you can get people to feel, man, I mean, even Hitler said, even Hitler's Goring said, you don't know Hitler through your mind, you know Hitler through your feelings. See, right, right. So they're really powerful. The, like, you got to know his heart. Right. Yeah. So my, my uh, response to you, my brother, is this. Uh, uh, the eyes are a sense that we have. 
but I don't feel through my eyes. I, so that's how, what I liken sensory perception to the Holy Spirit. If one of my senses is going to be involved, it's going to be my eyes. And I am going gotcha. to see clearly through the facts of things presented and will understand. So I have to trust what I'm taking in through my eyes to, under, to validate in terms of a sense what is right and what is not. Okay, man. I that, just, yeah, you give me some good feedback. I just, I'd had my own experiences, but you know, you could sit here and I could say, that's John from Salisbury, Maryland's subjective, subjective experience. I mean, even if I think it's true, it doesn't mean I can necessarily prove it, you know? No, and, and neither can I, and neither can anybody, to be honest with you. And that's why I say, if, if, a, if a Mormon comes to me and says, listen, I believe that the new and everlasting covenant is real, that we do have a priesthood, and I am convinced that you have to be sealed in the temple to reach the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. I really do am convinced of that. I'll say, hands off, brother, go ahead. That, that's yours. You believe it. You, you are convinced. I, who am I? I'm not the, 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 the cop of your heart and mind. It's between right. you and God, right? Yeah, and it was, it, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place because, like I told you, that's like, like you know, I've been to a few churches that where when you go in, and this is just me with my language, I, I can feel the spirit. Like, you know it's a, definitely a spiritual place, a, a, a deep Bible-based church, and they might not even be Mormon. I'm like, dude, this is a fantastic church, and the guy will preach a sermon, and you can just feel all this, and it's feelings, you're right. I just, with me, it's definitely a distinguishment between the feeling of the Holy Ghost. This is just me the feeling of the Holy Ghost, and somebody saying, hey, did you watch the talk last night that President Uchtdorf did? I just felt so happy about it. It's like, yeah, dude, I'm not talking about that. So I'm glad I got some feedback from you, bro. Yeah, and, and you know, I do know, I do believe absolutely that LDS have just as much right of being led by the Holy Spirit as everybody else. Sure, and, and, and the rock in a hard place, I was going to tell you, isn't just the Holy Ghost, because I, you know, I'm, I'm your biggest fan in Maryland. I can't speak for other states, but dude, you're, a, like I said, you're, you have a lot of integrity, and I'm watching this Jeff Durbin guy, and I think he's he's like one of uh, Dr. James White's homeboys. I think yeah. he's like his his. Uh, I don't know if he's like his soldier for him, but he's definitely a younger a version of him. And it seems like they are shoulder to shoulder in a lot of interviews and a lot of radio shows. You yeah, know? yeah, they are. They so, are. And I again, I don't know. You seem you seem a lot different. That you guys have a different approach. I just I like your approach a little bit more because you have that background with the LDS personally yeah you know, so well i hope those differences will be seen in our discussion with james uh because it is a completely different approach and we'll have to see what comes from that yeah and if you get a chance i mean i know it's your show but maybe you know with this with this point that i was bringing up tonight maybe you can pick his brain and 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 or maybe even use the example i gave you because where my where i'm having a hard time is i understand exactly what you mean like i was watching your episode tonight on baptism about how, like, you know, a lot of evangelicals and definitely Latter-day Saints believe that you have to be baptized for salvation, you know, that episode you did. Yeah. And, um, you know, with me, it's always been about behavior. Like, I didn't know that Joseph Smith had 33 wives till I watched your show. Yeah. I've been a member of my whole life. Yeah. So I'm trying to distinguish between the bad behavior of former um, men that lived on this earth and how I feel and what I felt was a witness of the Holy Ghost, because Moroni, I mean... I don't know who this guy was, or even if he was real or not. I just know how I felt with my own subjective experience, and I, and I knew you'd know where I was coming from because we were both indoctrinated in the LDS Church since we were kids. So, you know, if anybody could understand me, you would. Yeah, I understand you know? that completely. 
Yeah, you have experiences. If you didn't, why would anyone stay? You know, you have validations. And so people stay. We'll keep talking, my brother. Okay, I'll keep in touch. You take care. You have a great week. God bless you, brother. Same to you. Bye-bye. All right, later. Bye-bye. We have Timothy from Jefferson, uh, Missouri, Montana. What's M.O.? Hello? Hey, uh, Timothy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Awesome. Thanks, Sean, for having me. You're welcome. Yeah, I just, this is my first time watching one of your videos. I, although I was introduced to Preterism a few months ago, but I just had a question about uh, the destruction of the beast and Gog and Magog in 70 AD and how that was hard to fit that in. I understand that Jerusalem and Israel was judged at that time, but I don't see how the Roman Empire or Gog and Magog, maybe Gog and Magog is the Roman Empire, but I was curious how that fits into all things being fulfilled in 70 AD. My brother, I'm going to shoot straight with you. Uh, How I learn is by uh, where I'm at and then studying for what I'm doing next. And in Revelation, that has been the case. I take passage by passage, study it out the best I can, and present it on Sunday. When I get to Gog and Magog, uh, that, I don't even know what chapter that's in, that will come up on our archives, and if you call after that, I'll be able to answer you. I see. Okay. Yeah, I don't have yeah. uh, an answer for that. And so what I've done is I've said maybe when I get to anything in Revelation, it's going to prove that my views are wrong. And I'm willing, if I come to something, I haven't seen it yet, and we're in chapter 14, but if we come to something and it can't reasonably be answered, then I will change my view. But so far, we're okay. Gog and Magog may be the death to me. <laughs> hey, thanks for watching, my brother. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, call again. Cool. Okay, bye. We're getting a lot of people. Right. We're getting a lot of people from MO. You guys say is Missouri. Line three. I say it's the mountains. <laughs> Diana, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm better than Reed. I'm, I'm sorry. What? No, nothing, Diana. Go ahead. Now it's Deanna. Oh, Deanna, I'm sorry. That's all right. I get called Diana a lot in this life. <laughs> well, I'm Sean. Hi, Sean. I've been watching some of the stuff that, of course, I was led to by Holy Spirit, finding your video. I've been uh, to my church. Of course, I was born into the Mormon church. And it's been really different. <laughs> walking with Jesus and knowing what he's asked of me to do. Yeah. And when I go back in my mind, I'm going to try not to cry. Hang on. It's okay. You said something in your video tonight that I was watching, and he does engrave these things in our minds and in our hearts. Yeah. Things that are important for us symbols and signs and directions, and when I have walked back with him, the first place that he showed me in my memories at the age of two, I was only two, and I was in the Mormon temple in Utah, where my mom and my sister and my dad were about to be sealed, were, were sealed, 
I wasn't old enough, I guess. I'm not sure of the age limit of when you have, if you have to be a certain age to um, be still to your parents. I don't know. But I was not, I was. I don't know the answer on that one. You know, I, I don't know either. I, I tried to stay as far away from it and in it as possible, if that makes any sense. <laughs> my mom, my mom is a garment wearing Mormon. My father is a garment wearing Mormon. Um, my whole line of Creek family is Mormon, so it's not easy for me to say the things that I know that have come to light from the Holy Spirit and the will of my Father, but I know that when he showed me on this red ball, um, it wasn't a showing, it's a memory. I was actually there at the age of two in the Mormon temple. I remember being in the nursery and seeing, I, I can still see it today when I look in my mind, I saw the cribs lined up on the wall. The light was really dim, like babies might have been sleeping, but I, did, I felt like I was the only one in there. I remember the lady taking care of me with curly brownish blonde hair and glasses, and I was bouncing. I was riding on one of those play balls, those red balls that you sit on and bounce on with the handle. Uh-huh. And it was red. So I've done some symbol searching to find out why that's there, why is that memory in my mind. And, and it gets crazier from there. <laughs> wow. But um, I just have had a really hard time getting my mom. You know, it, it was not about two months ago. I told my mom when she attacked me with my ex-stepfather, who was also, also a Mormon. They just recently divorced, but they came to attack me while I was fasting and praying and, uh, you know, said that I was comparing myself to Jesus. And oh. I said, well, yeah, but the sinful side, or the sinful one, <laughs> he was perfect. Nobody's perfect like that. Nobody will be perfect like that here, ever. And if they are, then they need to stand up, for sure. But in that attack, I asked my mom, when you prayed and asked for confirmation that Joseph Smith is a true prophet of God, did you get a verbal answer? Did you get a for sure yes? Because I've been praying for that since as long as I can remember. What'd she say? But she looked dumbfounded. <laughs> she didn't really, she kind it was, it caught her off guard. I mean, she didn't know how to answer that. I mean, eventually it was, okay, yeah, I did, yes. So Deanne, what? I said, what? What's happening with you now? Are you, uh, are you uh, in the Word and you're walking with the Lord? Oh, absolutely. Every day. I can't even watch TV. Praise I God. Can't watch, I mean, even children's programs. I, I try to, you know, keep my kids from. I have a four-year-old and a eight-year-old at home, and I, I pulled my daughter out of school because they wouldn't stop with the headlights epidemic. <laughs> and I was over what they blindly teach them and program into their brains. Wow. Well, listen, so my, my sister. daughter knows more about Jesus than, you know, she, I, she argues with kids at school that say Jesus isn't real. Deanne, so, Deanne. I just, you know, I pulled in my family. There's so much that I want to say. I wrote a letter to the church. I had a vision. I, I met Jesus in 2005 after meditating for about eight months. I was looking at paganism and, you know, playing with some... tarot cards and girlfriend, you know, my girlfriend that I hadn't talked to in a long time, you know, finally took me back as a friend 
it, it's just been a crazy ride. It's been a crazy, crazy ride. Deanne? And I just want to share my vision. Deanne? Yes? Will you uh, wait on the line? We're out of time right now. I've got to take one more quick call from uh, Columbia MO. And, uh, but wait on the line because we want to send you uh, A to Z. I think it might be a benefit to you. Perfect. That would be amazing. Thank you, Sean. Okay. Hold on, please. Where's the hold on this thing? Okay. Manuel. Manuel. Yes. Hey, you're on the air, brother. We don't have much time, so fire away. You got to turn that computer off, Manuel. Manuel? Yeah. You gotta turn that you gotta turn your computer off or you're gonna that delay is gonna mess you up. Okay. Yeah, my wife's listening to it. I tried to go in another room. Those wives. Uh, okay, sorry about that. Uh I I just you know, I just wanted to support you, man. I called you today. Uh oh, okay. And uh just wanted to tell you, you know, the church is the bride of Christ. They wear Jesus' name. They don't wear the name of the church doesn't wear the name of the Trinity. Amen. The Trinity just kind of divides God up, you know. You got the bride of Christ, and then you got two of the other guys, the eternal bachelors. You know, they just, they, they, you know, they divide God up, and it's just kind of weird. I mean, it's once you get a, once you get an understanding of it, it's pretty pretty easy to deal with, man. But keep on keeping on. You're doing great. I just want to tell you, I appreciate you. Thanks, my brother. Appreciate you. I'll talk to you soon. All right, we will. God bless you now. God bless you. Bye-bye. Manuel called me and told me he had listened uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, James White's radio program tonight where he announced he's coming here to uh, confront me on uh, views of uh, uh, the ontology of God. And let's just wrap this up tonight. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, next week, we're going to have Michael Imperial from the First Presbyterian Church here sit and talk. Uh, but in terms of, just understand the Trinity. Uh, I don't see myself as a Trinitarian as it's been explained to me by Matt Slick and Rob Bowman and others. I do believe in God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Holy Spirit. All God. I believe in three. I believe in one. But I don't believe in certain elements that men have created for us to assent to in order to be right with each other. Uh, I I believe I have that right. I don't mock Trinitarians. I, people are Trinitarians. They may know God 10,000 times more than me. Uh, people may have a modalist or a Binitarian idea, which was very prevalent in the first church. I don't know. I can't tell you I know. All I can tell you is when I read scripture, it doesn't tell me the same things Trinitarians uh, tell me about God. It doesn't tell me those that you have to, you have to make them tell you that thing. So I'm not picking on them. I'm not saying they're not Christian. I'm just saying I don't get it. And I don't know if I ever will. If, if Pastor James White can, can clear me up and head me in the right direction, I'll accept it. Sure. Right here on the air, February 13th. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.